You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's a Christmas movie, some say, and in the end, the holiday classic Let It Snow plays over the credits. But what counts as snow in the final scenes is a confetti of smoke, debris, and millions of dollars of bearer bombs, not to mention the Eurovillain who tried to steal them. These descend from the blasted-out upper floor of a skyscraper onto a scene of total destruction. Worse, it all happens in Los Angeles. Is Die Hard actually a Christmas movie? And what is a Christmas movie anyway? On today's episode, we try to figure out if there's anything like a Yuletide miracle in this story about the violent defense of marriage and family against materialism, globalism, status, and other forces of social dissolution. This is Wes Alwyn. And this is Aaron Olanik. And you're listening to Subtext. So Aaron, I think we should resolve this question once and for all. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Okay, well, I have this long-standing discussion with family members over what constitutes a Christmas movie because they get very upset when I say that The Fellowship of the Ring is a Christmas movie. Ooh, that's yeah. upsetting to me as well. <laughs> yeah. So I have two uh, standards for this. There has to be an epic struggle between good and evil, and there must be snow. Now, L.A. doesn't have any snow. <laughs> However, it does end with the song Let It Snow, so technically the word snow is in the film. So I would call this a Christmas movie. Well, okay, good. It wins on a technicality. <laughs> So yeah, there is kind of stuff raining down from the sky. There's like shredded bear bonds. So those are the the bonds that um, Hans Gruber and his friends were after. And that one of the climactic moments of the movie, they're celebrating after getting into the vault and, and handling all those bonds to, well, Ode to Joy, which has been the, you know, the theme of the movie all along, but it reaches its climactic moment. That's what's coming down. That's the snow, is the destroyed dreams of a classically educated young German men. <laughs> <laughs> you know, also at the end, just the scene of all the, the wreckage and people cleaning up as John McClane and Holly ride off into the, uh, not the sunset, but whatever you want to call it, right off into the night. Into the back of Argyle's limo. He's like kind of the best character, maybe. There's a lot of good ones. <laughs> he is a great one. I forgot about him. So I, I have a terrible confession, which is until last night, I don't think I have ever seen this movie from beginning to end uninterrupted. It's the kind of thing that like plays at my my parents' house every Christmas to varying levels of interest from me. We're all going in and out. I hate the part where they kill Mr. Takagi. So mm -hmm. I would never watch that. This time I had to watch it. I still kind of looked away. So I guess I've still never really seen the full film. But yeah, so it was interesting to finally see it from beginning to end and to, to sort of tweeze out like, oh, the plain thing must be Die Hard 2 because I'm remembering them as like one big film. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Like, where's Samuel L. Jackson? <laughs> the fact that they turn this into a franchise is, yeah, unfortunate. And that there's any confusion between the movies. Yeah, that this is a work of art. <laughs> and the rest of it is just an attempt to exploit that for money. Yeah, so you really think that this is the best Christmas movie of all time? I do. Okay. But... Interesting. <laughs> so I originally saw this when I was 17 on my birthday, right after it com had come out on VHS. This is like one of the few memories from my high school years that is not completely repressed. <laughs> so oh my God. Being in my sister's apartment, watching Die Hard, and thinking, you know, and really enjoying it. But I really thought nothing of the movie until I watched it a few years ago. I mean, I had to have seen it again since I was 17, but I have no memory. That might have been the first time I'd seen it since I was a kid. And I thought, wow, this is really actually a very good movie, which I had never thought of it that way. I just thought it was like a great action film, but I thought it was, you know, the script was good and the thematically it was really interesting and a lot of great acting, including especially... Um, Alan Rickman? Yes, <laughs> especially Alan Rickman. And I'm just assuming. What he did with that character, you know, right after being plucked off the stage, right? I don't even think he had film career aspirations. He went straight from doing Shakespeare, right? To being a great villain in this movie. Though not his best villain performance, I think. What is his best? That would be when he cheated on Emma Thompson in Love Actually. That really broke my heart. But anyway, this is a close second. <laughs> Which movie did we watch together? 
Not Love Actually, but Notting Hill. Yeah, Notting Hill. Okay, I was trying to think. Was he in the? Was he in Notting Hill? No, I was impressed. I became excited about the movie. Maybe it was a couple of years ago when I when I saw it again, and um, I don't know that I can can defend the, <laughs> the idea that it's the greatest Christmas movie ever. Um, you so your criteria: are Life and Death, Struggle, and Snow. Those were the two. An epic battle or struggle between good and evil oh sorry life i put down life and death that's weird epic battle between good and evil good and evil oh and good has to win but that goes without saying (laughs) for a hollywood movie yeah in your opinion what are the the best christmas movies so i should say that i came up with these two criteria many years ago when pressed i just said them and my family has been quoting that back at me (laughs) for many years now (laughs) So um, I don't know how serious it is. It's sort of uh, solidified, but I would say that the best Christmas, there's only one. It's it's A Wonderful Life. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> it's it's the law. You can't acknowledge any other <laughs> film. An angel gets their wings every time someone says that's the best Christmas movie. <laughs> that's right. Every time someone says Die Hard is the best Christmas movie, Bruce Willis sends them a free wife beater. So. <laughs> I got to say that I thought the script was really good, but the funniest parts of the film for me, the unintentionally hilarious uh, parts, were when Bruce Willis was saying to himself, think, think. <laughs> was like, what scene is that where he says that? It's, it happens a couple times when he's sort of right before he goes into the elevator shaft the third or fourth time. or He's always in the elevator shaft. Poor guy. Yeah, he has the unfortunate, he's in the, and he said this was hard, Bruce Willis, but he's in the unfortunate position of having to act by himself very few interactions between himself and others. So it is really interesting to, because he has to, he does a lot of talking to himself, right? Yeah. Think, think, shit, everything's going to be fine. Stay calm. Well, I think for the most part, it's pretty believable, but I was, I was thinking about the function of Reginald Vell Johnson's character. I don't know. It gave me some interesting ideas about maybe what's at work in the film. Reginald Vell Johnson is like a favorite for me. Love Family Matters and him in Family Matters. So this was um, fun to see again. He's great. Yeah, I think it's interesting because the relationship between John McClane and Powell, that relationship is really important. What McClane represents is not just sort of the individualistic cowboy against... There are so many antagonists in this film, it would would take a long time to list them. A lot of them involve oppressive social and cultural forces, oppressive in the sense that they work to the detriment of marital fidelity or marital cohesion or the social fabric, all those good old-fashioned values that sort of get associated in this movie with Christmas. And so that's the sense in which it can be said to be a Christmas movie and not just set, you know, during Christmas, right? During this weirdly contradictory idea of Christmas in LA as opposed to Christmas in New York, right? In New York, Christmas is Christmas. In LA, what is it? Mm. Something very bastardized, right? Yeah. Very unnatural. Something that becomes a Christmas movie on a technicality rather than real snow. Yeah. Exactly. Not just because California is warm and Western, but because it's, and snowless, but because as it it's made out in the movie, it represents kind of uh, oddness or a set of values and conflict with like New York grittiness and practicality. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think your the relationship with, you know, as you point out, with Officer Powell is really important because it highlights the fact that what he represents is more of a family man mm-hmm. kind of person who has heart and bonds with other males. You might see him as a representative of just machismo and masculine violence and all that stuff vindicating itself against the forces of civilization <laughs> i don't know what you would say but For bruce willis's character or? yeah yeah oh, but, oh, but yeah, he yeah. himself will say you know at a certain point you macho bastards as they're trying to they're trying to send the the armored vehicle up the steps right so he's more than the representative of individuality and being a cowboy and vigilanteism and things like that that um, Hans Gruber would want to make him out to be. He has something to do with these a very large set of associated values that involve class and Christmas and family and, you know, like working class, I mean, and, and so on and so forth. For me, this movie became a movie about partnership. You know, when the image of the cowboy is invoked, Hans Gruber, who says, like, you're not going to ride off with uh, Grace Kelly into the sunset or something like that, um, or walk off into the sunset with Grace Kelly. And, yep. uh, and then they have that thing about that was Gary Cooper. It's not the lone cowboy, even in Hans Gruber's estimation. And I was thinking about that and how everyone, there's, there's just a, a tremendous amount of duality in the film. Everyone seems to have a pair. 
So obviously, like, there's the broken partnership of the marriage at the center of the film. There's the idea of partnership in in police work, you know, where you typically have a partner. There's the idea of those two brothers, the two German brothers um, that, you know, <laughs> the, the Germans seem to come in pairs, except for Hans Gruber. Um, hmm. And uh, gosh, like there, there were just so many instances of it. I mean, he has so he has two kids, right? A girl and a boy. The two FBI officers that come in, Agent Johnson, Johnson, Johnson. and Special <laughs> Agent Johnson. Love and I love how they're like one's black, one's white, and they have to explain to people that they're not related. <laughs> yeah. The intrusion of the film crew is really interesting because I think that is also making a obviously a commentary on LA. And I don't know that it fully works because I don't think it's really fleshed out all the way. The, the media intrusion, the TV coverage. But I do really love that moment where they have that expert on TV who has written a book called Hostage Terrorist, <laughs> Terrorist Hostage or something like that. Yeah, and right, Helsinki syndrome instead right, of Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. Right. But that duality, you know, hostage terrorist, I think that scene is followed by, I think it's between or maybe it's followed by these two things in quick succession when Johnson and Johnson show up and when Hans Gruber pretends to be a hostage. So mm. he's like his own sort of dual figure, maybe of, of criminal and cultured esthete. I, I, I don't have anything to say about that, except that I found it interesting and it must be making some sort of commentary on the necessity of relationships, the way of, of healing the broken marriage at the center of this or something um, so I, I didn't see it so much as, as John McClane's rugged individualism, even though he is fighting a lot of bad guys and a lot of incompetent people, that he does have this relationship of dependence and the, the partnership that he's in, in his marriage also like can't be found out, mm -hmm. which is another angle on that. Yeah. I think it's all about the importance of relationships in the beginning. It's about you know, it could be a mundane story about a couple who's having problems because of certain social changes, you know, women in the workforce, and now there's dual careers and there's geographic dislocation. So you take that very fundamental story, which could have just been told straight, right? And you, and you graft an action movie onto that. That's thematically really powerful, actually. Hmm. You get the strong connection between the danger of the loss of his relationship with his wife and lots of other dangers, spiritual, psychological, physical, societal, individual. Like I said, there's a long list of antagonists in the movie, like Network, our, our last discussion. You know, the film is not shy about adding those up, throwing more on the bonfire. So it even starts out like sexual temptation is one of those antagonists or it's... Mm -hmm. It's one of the villains in the film, and it's, I think, artfully done, right? So the, one of the very first things that happens in the movie when he's getting off the plane and he's at the baggage section is he sees a young girl jump into her boyfriend's arms, and he basically looks at her ass. And there's the pinup girl later on. He gets distracted by this topless pinup girl in the building, and there's kind of a flirtation. Actually, you know, there, there's kind of a flirtation between him and a stewardess on the plane, and so this is one of many threats to marital fidelity. And then I've mentioned things like the dual careers, but you also get materialism with the Rolex watch. You get Ellis, the finance bro, multinational corporations, globalization, technology, right? As soon as he shows up to, well, even his fear of flying is kind of works into that, but he, you know, he shows up to for the office party initially and he's trying to find Holly by her last name, his last name, McLean, and he there's a disappointment in finding out that she's gone back to her maiden name. Mm -hmm. There's also a banter with the security guard about the threat of technology, right? McLean goes cute toy when he's talking about the electronic interface that he can use to look through the building directory which looked fancy in its time right now it looks like primitive compared to iPads and things <laughs> like that looked fancy in its time. And, and he goes cute toy and the guard goes, yeah, you have to take a leak. It'll even help you find your zipper. And then the, the list goes on bureaucracy, like the, you know, the FBI or as Hans Gruber puts it, the F B I <laughs> they're one of the antagonists. The police are one of the, the antagonists. And, and, uh, Apart from these pseudo-terrorists represented by Gruber, apart from these, these sort of white-collar criminals on steroids, 
you have all these other opponents, which could get messy or, or maybe it feels, you know, could make the movie feel like it's overloaded. But in this case, it doesn't. It all works very very well together, I think. I was just getting at the sense in which you're, you know, you, you mentioned the importance of this relationship with Powell and relationships in general, the way that is expanded out into the movie as a whole. Is it Ellis, the schmarmy guy? Yeah. The guy is calling a finance bro. Yeah, the schmarmy. Right. He also represents sexual temptation for Holly, right? Right. Like he hits on her and that's obviously subverted very quickly because being a hostage isn't conducive to sexy time, but he, uh, I think, and the, <laughs> he and uh, Mr. Takagi, I was thinking about this too, that they're both, since they're both sort of killed in the same way or in similar ways, obviously Mr. Takagi has a lot of um, dignity as a character, but I'm wondering about those two being detached from other people, Takagi at the top of this company, you know, use the term white collar criminals, I assume to refer to Gruber and co. I did. It's right. I called it on steroids, right? Yeah. They're not technically white collar criminals, but they, I think in a way are meant to represent, you know, Ellis says, I use a pen, you use a gun. That's what's the difference or something like that. That's right. But yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think there's, I mean, definitely Ellis is kind of a villain and the way in which business is done even, you know, legally in this corporation seems to be something that is not entirely savory. I don't know how, how literally we're supposed to take that. Like I say, like Mr. Takagi is, it seems like he's a, a, a good guy and certainly has an interesting history when uh, Gruber reads his biography uh, aloud. Yeah, his resume is very... Very impressive. Fancy resume. Yeah. Well, and it's also heroic and it has an incredible arc to it. I mean, he was interred in a Japanese internment camp in California and rose from from nothing, it sounds like. So, but at the same time, he is he is not partnered up with anybody. You know, he's it's it's lonely at the top for him and he ends up getting killed. And then Ellis, of course, is not partnered with anyone, though he tries to be. And he mm-hmm. ends up getting bumped off, too. I wonder what you think about that. And and this invocation, too, of I don't know what the movie is trying to say about this, that when the villains are Germans and America has made some sort of unholy alliance with Japan, then in this, in this, uh, mm-hmm. you know, capitalist enterprise, I don't know what the movie is getting at in that gesture. I mean, uh, Pearl Harbor is mentioned. Mm-hmm. We have this, this shadow of this internment camp. Yeah. You could say there are jingoistic tendencies mm-hmm. in the film, but they, and they do re- reflect working at class anxieties, right? Which a lot of this film does oh sure the worry about globalization and multinational corporations these sort of cross political lines to some extent and you know at the time the media environment was focused on japan as an economic threat especially japanese technology so Uh, that makes sense i think people are less aware of how much of that was part of the zeitgeist at the time i mean i remember it as a 17 year old but the idea you know there's a lot of jokes about japan and technology and the impending economic hegemony that was going to result from that. Yeah. And doesn't Takagi say we didn't win at Pearl Harbor, so we got them with electronics, something like that. VCRs. VCRs. Oh, that's good. Yeah. The prompt for that is he's asked about, someone says, you throw quite a party. I didn't realize they celebrated Christmas in Japan. I think that might be McLean. And uh, he says, we're flexible. Pearl Harbor didn't work out, so we got you with tape decks. Well, it's interesting, the line there. I, I hadn't realized, I mean, I had, I hadn't realized that anxiety because it is a troubling element of the film as much as sad when Takagi dies and everything, you know, personally seems fine. But there's this idea of um, what Holly is engaging in and what the whole company is engaging in as a kind of, I'll call it cowboy capitalism or something, which is like also part of John McClane's identity, of course, as like a cowboy and the rugged individualist. But then there's also this idea of it's not far from what Hans Gruber is trying to do, which is basically pick their pockets. I mean, at a, at a gigantic scale. It's interesting because it's not like the difference between some sort of epic struggle between communism and, and free America. It's more like the difference between 1980s high finance business deals, which I know from Wall Street is not entirely savory, and people who are slightly more unsavory. Yeah, I think the book is on which this is based is more obvious about this, and it's consciously softened in the films. The novel is Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. I had um, no idea this was based on a novel. Yeah, and the, and the rights to the novel were purchased even before its development because they made a film with Frank Sinatra based on a, uh, a previous novel that this guy oh, had written. Oh, what movie? The Detective 
1968. Oh, sure. Film. I've seen that. <laughs> so yeah. based on a novel by the same guy. And in fact, they had to offer 70-year-old Frank Sinatra the, the part played by Bruce Willis. Oh, my gosh. Contractually, they had to offer it to him before. And that, you know, of course, he said, that's okay. <laughs> what I wouldn't give for a screen test of that. That's hilarious. There's a great making of documentary out there which i can't remember the name of but i'm sure people can find it but it just there's so much interesting trivia about how this film was made and a lot of it actually has made its way into the wikipedia article for the film in the novel it's terrorists they have clear political motivations and um in the film this was consciously softened mm. because they wanted the villains to be not so mean well mean is the word used by the director of the film john mctiernan he didn't want it to be so mean. I think he, he thought maybe it would make it too serious and heavy and he was looking for something light. You know, his, he had the film, the, the original screenplay extensively rewritten to introduce a lot of comedy into it. Mm -hmm. They allowed a lot of improvisation from Bruce Willis and from others to introduce comedy into it, including these great scenes, right? Where the, where the henchman looks down at the candy bar yeah, yeah, and can't resist taking it. Or the, uh, the SWAT team guy injures himself on a rose thorn <laughs> mm -hmm. and goes, ow, as he's running into the lots of great little comic touches like that. So that's all part of this kind of softening project they had to make it not like a typical action film, but it also makes it the role of the villains more ambiguous, which works, right? Because you can do this thing where you can say, as Hans Gruber will claim, are the villains all that much different than the corporate people or the other bureaucrats or other oppressive social forces in society, which again are also the antagonists in this film. And it is ambiguous, right? Because they're not really terrorists. They don't really have political goals, even though Hans Gruber was part of a, of a terrorist organization he's been expelled from it and he's decided he just wants to money and to go live on the beach and when he makes an early speech in the film about how this corporation has been doing something terrible and that's why he's here it's completely a lie so there's an interesting parallel between the terrorists and the corporate types and even takagi right takagi and and hans gruber have a lot in common hans sure. gruber says in the elevator scene when they're taking takagi to the place where they're ultimately going to kill him you know nice suit and then he names the designer of the suit and says he has a few of them himself and rumor has it arafat has one as well terrorism is turned into something cynical and associated with corporate greed and things like that and takagi himself right very cultured very educated one of the things that grouper says when he walks into the portion of the office with all the models when where they're taking takagi says you know and when alexander saw the breadth of his domain he wept for there were no more worlds to conquer and then he makes that remark benefits of a classical education yeah <laughs> which i love you know benefits of a classical education which you could also call an antagonist in the film right the elites and their education you know speaking of pairings and relationships takagi and and hans gruber have a lot in common and it's part of what makes the scene where he's willing to off him so quickly and and cavalierly so shocking right? Because you would think Gruber would have some admiration and interest in that sort of resume and someone who also probably has a classical education and somewhat accomplished and interested in money and if he is and things like that. Sure. Yeah. Well, I love that remark about the suits and, and even, you know, Alexander's domain, because it does imply that the, the ruling class, whether they be corporate or, or actual leaders of, of countries or something like that are all kind of a monoculture. They all have the same type suits and they, you know, I, I think this is easily, um, more easily imagined for men than for women, um, especially because of the term suits. But this idea that everybody is all, you know, those at the top are all part of the same breed, mm. whether they be good guys or bad guys or some combination of both. But I like, too, the idea that Gruber sort of is and isn't an ideologue or that mm. somehow believing in classical education makes him a bad guy, but not a mean guy or, so, or something like that, you know, by the director's standard. And I think you're right that when we get more terroristic, more sinister motivations, I think that's when you end up with like a Jason Bourne movie rather than a diehard. The, the Jason Bourne stuff I was thinking of, I love that trilogy. Mm -hmm, me too. And I was thinking of, of that when John McClane starts getting shot at by the FBI because he's waving his machine gun around and mm -hmm. <laughs> trying to get people back down, <laughs> downstairs and away from the bomb. 
but yeah, but the idea of the the government as being an antagonist too, it, it puts them also aligned with, you know, the FBI aligned with Gruber in a way as well. Yeah, yeah. Even Vietnam, even the Vietnam War comes in for a bit of a bashing, right? Sure. And that older Johnson of of the FBI is whooping it up in the helicopter mm-hmm. and saying it's just like Saigon or something like that. Right. And the response from the younger Johnson is like, I was in middle school asshole or something like that. Well, that's a great moment. So the motivation of the FBI is to enact, it's it's like a kind of play acting. I think there's, there's some play acting that goes on with Gruber and McLean, obviously when Gruber pretends to be a hostage and when he sort of casts McLean in the role of the cowboy. Mm-hmm. But then I, I like the fact, too, that the FBI seem to be working from this script. So they they don't have a sense that everyone's seen the same movie, I guess. And that the, you know, the, that Gruber and his associates know everything that the FBI is going to do ahead of time. Someone says, I think, the nerdy guy who's hacking into the mainframe or whatever mm-hmm. to get out the, uh, the bonds. The, is it Theo? Theo, okay. Um, yeah, he's like, oh, it's right out of the FBI playbook or, or something like that. And I think Powell makes a similar comment about how it's stupid to go in or they're going to be expecting that. I know McLean has the same intuition about. I think it's Gruber, right? Who says, you know, you wanted a Christmas miracle. I give you the FBI, mm-hmm. which, which is always the way he says it, right? With those pauses. So. Right. So let's pause here for a minute to talk about something really exciting for all the established creatives out there and for aspiring filmmakers and screenwriters too. NYU Tisch School of the Arts is offering a slate of online courses this spring on screenwriting and documentary filmmaking. And guys, I've got to tell you that these courses look pretty impressive. There's one course called Writing for the Screen, in which you'll complete a film treatment and a step outline of your own feature film or TV episode. And there's another course called Documentary Workshop, which features participation from the New York Times OpDocs. The courses use a remote learning platform with some pretty incredible features. These are not just your basic classroom video meetings. NYU Tisch Pro designed these courses specifically to be digital, and the interface looks great. It's intuitive, inherently collaborative, and interactive. You can watch video lectures delivered by Tisch faculty at your own pace, But then you can also join live video meetings and schedule one-on-one sessions with professors. And you can work with other students around the world as a virtual crew. There are built-in collaboration features like a live chat to discuss your creative work. And you can seamlessly share, download, annotate, review, and comment on video content all without leaving the platform. There's even a particularly cool feature which allows your professor or virtual crewmate to leave a comment at a specific timestamp on your video so you can zero in to exactly what they're talking about. So if you've been wanting to try screenwriting or documentary filmmaking, or you have a specific story that you've always wanted to put on screen, 2022 is just around the corner. Maybe make it a New Year's resolution to bring your ideas to life. The deadline for spring courses is January 7th. You can learn more at tishpro.smashcut.com slash subtext. That's tishpro, T-I-S-C-H, pro.smashcut.com slash subtext. And now back to the show. Yeah. So there's um, an, an expectation of how things are going to go down, maybe based on movies or, you know, how some idea that the FBI follows the same kind of script every single time. And, and so the FBI is trying to take off on some sort of, or at least this one guy in the FBI, on some sort of Vietnam fantasy, yeah. which is very reminiscent of like, you know, what we were talking about in Apocalypse Now and all that sort of thing, which maybe this guy could have been in the Vietnam War or he could just like <laughs> Vietnam War movies. So there's this idea of the the sort of shared culture and this the shared script that everybody seems to know and seems to be working from. And only by stepping outside of that script can you achieve success in defending yourself or in defeating the evil people. Yeah, I think that's interesting because it Right. This is caricature and this movie is a satire. These aren't even realistic, right? For all the bad things, the FBI and bureaucrats and the police and and all the rest of the antagonists do, they're not bad in precisely this way. It's more complicated. One of the Johnson and Johnson guys says to the police chief, Dwayne T. Robinson, another name that I love. Oh, yeah, Dwayne. Dwayne. (laughs) Dwayne. (laughs) He says, Bruce Willis says a really funny way. Played by Paul Gleason of The Breakfast Club, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. School teacherly kind of vibe. Yeah. 
so representative of authority of the bad hypocritical sort you know we could talk about all on how that's represented but so one of the fbi guys says to him you know we'll try to let you know if we commandeer your police force or he's like if you know if we can't we if we have to commandeer your your men we'll, we'll try to let you know <laughs> just so yeah. exaggerations for comic effect but also pure caricature with the saigon thing in the helicopter and running up the armored vehicle up the steps throwing caution to the wind all of that stuff but it works right it doesn't ever seem unnatural because the movie is not it's that's it doesn't need to be it's a it's a satire and even you know hans gruber is over the top there's not meant to be a realism really here there's a parable like or dreamlike quality to this movie so the strength of the movie lies in its like i said before it's thematic antagonists the oppressive social forces that threaten family and marriage those are feel real and and they are real and even if for fun you have to make your your villain charming and classically educated <laughs> and all that stuff and you have to make the, the police totally inept and the fbi totally gung-ho doesn't change the fact that those those caricatures may more honestly represent the forces at work i really like what you say at the beginning about how place i mean this isn't real it's la Right. Like right, the, the, right. the cliches are movie cliches. And that's, I think, part of the reason why it works so well is because it is in fantasy land, la la land. It's, it's also like the over the top element, I think, is also exploited by the, the TV journalist thread, too, which, again, like, I don't know. I just I wish that was a little bit more prominent in the film, because I think that that really dovetails nicely with the movie's satire. You know, I kind mm -hmm. of knew the moment when Holly slaps the TV journalist guy that he would hope that they caught that on camera, you know. And, and so I was satisfied rather than being disappointed or say, oh, of course, you know, I was satisfied that he turned and said, you know, did you get that? You know, the kids being interviewed, uh, saying, you know, mommy and daddy come home, <laughs> you know, it's just like so delicious and exploitative and gross. You know, it's kind of amazing to think that this is also like pre-OJ LA, but it's sort of, um, it's it's part of that continuum or maybe maybe it started that continuum. I don't know. But the idea of like the intrusion of the press into the press worthy moment seems like a particularly LA kind of problem. Yeah. You know, your use of this word exploitation, because that's a word that connects some of these different villains mm -hmm. from the corporate to the criminal or terroristic to the media and so on. Yeah. And thinking about whether this is a uh, Christmas movie, I thought about the fact that when I was trying to make my list of, which I've been talking about, of protagonists and antagonists, and then I thought there's kind of a duality within Christmas itself and I was hmm. remembering our very first episode about the apartment and the scenes of licentiousness going on at an office Christmas party. Yeah, yeah. People making out everywhere. When McLean is interestingly thrust into this office environment, um, so there's a strong class element here too, right? So he's way over his head class-wise. He's he's you know he's right off the just gotten off the plane in LA cop from New York walks into this party is offered champagne. I think he still was the teddy bear in the car. I guess he leaves the teddy bear in the car around a bunch of very well-educated cultured people. One of whom is his wife, right. And is wearing a Rolex now and which will become very significant, right? Because at the end of the movie, that's the thing that has to be <laughs> undone in order to send Hans Gruber to his death. Right. He's holding on to that Rolex. So he is really out of place as far when it comes to status in this environment. But we also get the association with sexual temptation and looser values and, and not just a people overly focusing on advancement and becoming powerful and rich, but the opportunities that an office environment offers for infidelity, but especially during a Christmas party. So mm -hmm. what what interested me was this way in which the the celebratory jolly aspect of of Christmas it's meant to be about family and the movie makes this very clear you know that's one version of Christmas being at home with your spouse and your kids but the other side of that is drinking a lot and partying so there's an internal <laughs> split within Christmas and I think it makes for a good Christmas movie to highlight them 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I also noticed that, especially with that couple, like sort of getting caught in the middle of, of a tryst or something yeah. like that. Yeah, it was very, you know, it's it's sort of more of the rated R version of of what I actually love about, there are a lot of office Christmas parties in movies in the 50s and 60s, interestingly, because I think so many people, like especially with women entering the workforce and um, and sort of this like new licentiousness in movies too, it sort of comes in through the office in a weird way. So my favorite is in this is is a, a wholesome version of this, which is in the movie uh, Desk Set from 1957 with Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, where they they just get drunk and they have like a really merry old time, and and there, there's a joyousness to that, and a and a, a jolly merry kind of Christmas vibe, right? It's about uh, you know celebrations are kind of about this indulgence and um, and having fun in that way, and eating too much, drinking too much. But then, yeah, but you're right. Like the intrusion of the of the sensual, I think, also serves to kind of undermine the structures that are, I think, also being subverted by the office, which is you have these, even in like the Santa Claus, it's like, the you know, the single dad who works too much and isn't mm. home. So there's already something sort of broken about an office culture. And obviously like the, the, the tropes about secretaries. And yeah, like you say, the, the ability of the office to break up a family, whether that be because you're having an affair with someone you're working with or because you're working long hours away from the home mm -hmm. and you're away from the home for long periods of time. Or you have to move for your new job. Yeah. Right. I think there's also a dual, you know, not just the sort of sexual licentiousness, but I think that there's an inherent duality in Christmas for people who are, I mean, it's an extremely lonely holiday if you don't have a family and that it brings all of these things to the fore, right? Like mm -hmm. if you've, I think I'm, I'm sure people have experienced holidays where it's like right after a loved one has died and mm. the holiday takes on this really painful aspect where everything is sort of magnified. So I think like the holiday office party is a really interesting sort of demonstration of that where you have everyone sort of like good and bad qualities <laughs> really get magnified in that kind of dissociative environment. You're making me think about what is it that Christmas is is celebrating exactly other than the the competing what would you call them the, the, you know there's, there's christianity there's the christian celebration on the one hand and then there's the pagan thing with the tree and they got fused together somehow and and, and we've been talking about family and the, and the association between christmas and family is that is there anything else to say about what it is that Christmas celebrates? Well, there's all that in there. I mean, there's Christ's two natures, right? As God and man. There's this mm. idea of like, the, there's there's obviously the family at the heart of the Christmas story. But at the same time, you know, Mary is an unwed mother, even though she has a husband. She's kind of like a single mom at the same time, right? right. Like there's a... Knocked up at the office party. Hey, hey now. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> the one with God. The, the... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> She has, uh, you know, the man helping take care of her and all that. But she also has, there's the, the class element there too, frankly, like they can't even get, she can't even give birth indoors, right? They mm. have to go to the, they're isolated from the, whatever party maybe is going on at the inn. I don't know they don't have anything to celebrate yet because it's, they don't know what's happening, but there's an isolating element of that and of being, you know, very shortly being on the run and, and, um, Anyway, yeah, so I, th I think there's a lot of inherent conflict in the mm. in the whole nature of Christmas. And like John McClane, they were probably barefoot. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, they were wearing sandals probably, but sure, there's a lot of barefoot stuff going on. But what do we, you know, that's... that's well, I'm sure great... Jesus was born barefoot, so that's obviously the go. symbolism. Yeah, but that's one of the things I love about this movie, this off-noted thing, is that McClane is, you know, does all of his action stuff while he's barefoot and has gets his feet cut up on glass so that there's a kind of stigmata element right going on and the mm. suggestion of a Christ figure. And all of this is set up at the very beginning of the movie where it's his fear of flying that leads to all of this because it's, you know, another passenger says, Oh, if you, I'll tell you what helps just ball your feet up like fists on the carpet. Mm -hmm. And for some reason that'll alleviate your fear of flying. <laughs> Yeah, I did not get Which is that. It's a weird idea, but that's what he's trying to do. And somehow it's working. Maybe it's just a de-stressing thing in general, but that's what McLean is doing. And that's why he's caught with his shoes off, so to speak. Mm. There's something here that's being made of his suffering 
obviously. So they, and this is one of the, one of the interesting things about the casting of Bruce Willis in this role and the vulnerability involved in it, and him tearing up and almost crying, and and his giving his last words via Powell to his wife, you know, telling her he apologizes. He, he's not like one of the typical action heroes of the time, just all muscled up and out to do everything like a like a Rambo kill everything in sight he's vulnerable and he's wisecracking and he's reluctant you know he probably wouldn't mm-hmm. even be engaged in this fight if he didn't absolutely have to be he's not a hero necessarily who's going to run into the burning building to to save people or or anything like that there's a fair amount of fair amount of cynicism so i i'm trying to draw some kind of connection between those things and the suffering that he has in, that he does in the movie i i guess i associate it with working class suffering and people who just get down to work and do the hard things that have to be done in a society the real physical things construction or being a cop or something like that as opposed to being part of a corporation i don't know i haven't thought through this whole the role of the bear the bloody bear feet and and his suffering in this you know apart from saying oh that's very christ-like i'm not sure how you connect it thematically yeah well i really like that he's this is a working class symbol that he's you know part of this infrastructure of the country that gets the the hard work done this you know this sort of silent people who make everything run for the corporate types yeah i i love the fact that so much is made of california in this in fact i was i was thinking about you know annie hall and how woody allen just gets physically ill when he's in California or the, not Woody yeah. Allen, but, but Alvy Singer. As do we all. And I almost misremembered that that, I mean, I did kind of misremember before rewatching it that McLean had some kind of physical reaction to California as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what we get from him is a few comments about, oh, California. What is it about California that's so objectionable to a New Yorker? Part of it is just oh, the level don't of- Don't get me started. <laughs> Or he says, fucking California is what he says. One of his comments he makes after he is, uh, I think it's when the couple is actually making out at the party before they go and off into the room. You know, the couple is going to get punished for their for their sexuality later. He'll, he'll make one of his California remarks. So loose values, maybe weirdness, flakiness, less grit, less practicality. It's the same thing in Ghostbusters. It kind of represents the the heart and soul of the, the nation and the working class but you know its vices as well as its virtues gruffness lack of friendliness lack of refinement maybe but also gets things done and ultimately heart of gold type of thing well i think that california has its own lack of refinement but i definitely yeah i I associate new york with with real life (laughs) and real people not that california is full of automatons or something I, i mean my experience of being there is like not being able to believe that people actually lived there all year round and that that was the weather all year round. Like, it seems like the kind of place that is a vacation spot that no one should be living in because there's a lack of um, grit required to live there. Yeah. And like, you should suffer for at least part of the year as yeah. just as a human being, exactly. you should, it's you should have to contend with something. Right. Right. And so people lose their connection to reality. And I think is the implication. I mean, this is, of course, these right. are, we're talking about, gross generalizations and stereotypes and associations that are that are unfair of course yeah to the complexity of places obviously but that yeah this is like what these places i think signify at some level yeah i was going to say that's it's the semiotics of these places but that's a very california thing to say no it's not even a classical education thing to say is it to use the word semiotics in a sure it is well it depends on how recently you know stop postmodern education we were talking about McLean being a jerk and that being his arc to apologize for what is it he says specifically about what he's apologizing for? For not being supportive of her, I think. Yeah. Or happy for her. There is one thing she should apologize for, which is the fact that her perm registers at like <laughs> a nine point two on the Richter scale is just devastating. It makes her look older than she is, which I, I just don't do not get eighties fashion or, or the hair especially it, it ages people yeah i mean she looks better now than she did in that movie as like an older woman like she's a very beautiful older woman yeah and in that movie it's she's beautiful in the movie except that well the halo the hair, it's just the hair yeah <laughs> obscures the- it's so traumatizing it just yeah it ruins everything yeah okay so she has to apologize for that is there anything else she has to apologize <laughs> 
<laughs> and she is wearing a she's wearing a Rolex. That's true, and uh, an ugly outfit. And she is hanging out with an enormous douchebag in Ellis. Yeah, but she's she's keeping him. She's fine. She she's is. Okay. Yeah, she's keeping him in his place. You can't really have a movie in which a woman is the uh, is the what? What is it? I'm thinking of the sitcom parody of the guy, you know, the family guy who who is um, kind of an I- idiot, right? And the wife is always smarter and puts up with him and has to be his better half and all that stuff. Are there other movies in which the guy is the better half? Yeah, there are, but I don't think that's the dynamic here. Like, I think that he, I think that Bruce Willis is just being selfish. He's not like an idiot or an oaf or whatever. He just is being insecure. And, well, and, it's not, but it, but it's working class. You know, despite his criticism of machismo, there's that you you kind of suspect that that's part of what's going on with him. His pride, his male, you know, as if his masculine pride, which that there's the wife beater. There's a connection to between this and status so being an idiot is not exa- is not the most precise term but it is um you know being obtuse in this particular way which is connected to lack of refinement and class stereotypes and things but one of the interesting ways in which class is used in this movie is just with the use of classical music and its association with the villains and it's it's associated with both the corporate types and with the pseudo terrorists as i like to call them but you know when when mm. mclean first arrives at the party there's a quartet i think playing oh right right or, or there's some musicians there playing playing classical music and i think we get a reaction of mclean to that and and various other things that i think he sees as pretentious happening at the at the party and then there's the wonderful use of beethoven's ode, ode to joy throughout the whole movie which i think from what i read the composer of the score was actually reluctant to do and had to be persuaded to do by the by the director but i mean it it is really fabulous because it's used for the entire score. So even, you know, early on when the Gruber's gang is arriving in there or is, is you know, there's a shot of them, them moving in their van and you hear the low notes, maybe it's a cello or something of part of Ode to Joy as a uh, made to sound sinister, mm-hmm. right? Made to sound foreboding. And so it makes use of it for any different emotion you want to get out of the film. I mean, it, and it climaxes, like I said, with them luxuriating in their bearer bonds where you get the climactic moment of that piece of music. Yeah, it's another um, over-the-top German in the movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess if they wanted to make a, a statement about Nazis, it would have to be Wagner, but uh, these aren't ideologues. They're just Germans. But uh, Yeah, there's not a, there's not, there's nothing, there's no Nazi stereotype here. It's interesting. That, I mean, that German-ness is used, is exploited for villainy here, but it's not, it's a very different type of German-ness. Right. Well, I like to the, I don't know if you would call the interior of the plaza beautiful. It's not my taste. Um, I mean, certainly it's like an impressive building and the, the waterfall and the sort of water element that then Bruce Willis will like hide in. I, I think it's a replication of a fr- something Frank Lloyd Wright did actually. Well, there are a lot of elements of water for the waterfall house okay. in, inside. I'm not the biggest fan of Frank hmm. Lloyd Wright. I mean, I, respect it, but I <laughs> wouldn't want to live there. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't want to live in Nakatomi Plaza, but um, also because, you know, the foundation is probably a little off now, but the element of that architectural model that's in Takagi's office. You're talking about the one of those actual models? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I honestly don't know. Well, there's a beautiful just just beautiful look to that and this this idea of which uh you know Hans Gruber admires so the sort of like visual art or the architecture of the Nakatomi Plaza interiors anyway and this model in the office and you know the expensive suits and the score are all this kind of nice these high culture elements that this corporate world even though it's corporate is participating in mm-hmm. they're not just putting up you know tract houses or or even putting up big radio towers or putting satellites and other you know celestial debris up, up into the atmosphere like they're they're actually making things that that look beautiful and Hans Gruber also like even though he's a I like pseudo terrorist that's that's really good uh term for him he also of course appreciates like the the beautiful and so it's fitting that he should have ode to joy as his theme music it's funny yeah you know you could accuse the movie of, of being unfair to like you know again to a lot of these different antagonists including classical education and culture if you take it too literally but uh, but on the other hand it's it's part of what 
makes Hans Gruber such an interesting villain, and I, and I think probably changed the way villains were done in movies, right? I think this is kind of an innovative thing they did. I'm not certain. The well-educated, charming, genuinely very smart and clever, formidable villain, that's something that, that works really well. That's actually a trope of, of Nazi villainy, the highly educated mm. villain, the reasonable, cultured villain. That's what makes the whole Nazi trope in movies so chilling and also in real life. You know, I think the, the stereotype of like the person who's had, who's been too cultured and, uh, you know, I mean, heart of darkness, <laughs> what we've been, right. Right. <laughs> our, our persistent theme for, for months now, um, has been this kind of villain. And like, I think of, um, you know, the third man or which is a movie I hope we do at some point or, um, anything in which James Mason is a villain, Right. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I think it's all, this is all part of that continuum. Yeah. I don't know how long American movies had, if they had, or, or if so, how long they'd kind of gone without doing that. I honestly don't know. I think there is a trend of trying to emulate this, right? When, you know, once the whole Hans Gruber approach to a villain, I think they tried to, you know, once people saw how well that worked, tried to replicate it. Didn't they replicate it within this film series? Because didn't they use it, Jeremy Irons? Yes. For something... Exactly. Yeah. Is he supposed to be his brother? I think so. Yes. That works really well. They could be brothers in real life. <laughs> Don't you think? Yeah. Like they have a very yeah, similar. Absolutely. Yeah. Not only because they're two Englishmen pretending to be Germans, but <laughs> that's kind of a niche. So that's a family trait. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Something um, that Rickman does very well, I think, too, with the, the English accent with, with a slight undertone. You know, it's a weird mutt accent, right? Right. So it's got to be really hard to pull off. I love um, when he's like, Clay, <laughs> Will Clay, or whatever he gives his name as when he plays the, the fake hostage. And he does like a pretty good. Does it great, yeah. American, is it Southern? Is it California? I don't know. It works really well. Yeah. From what I understand, they were trying to figure out how to have McLean and Gruber meet one-on-one -on -one at some point and i they were having trouble figuring that out until someone overheard rickman doing his american accent while socializing with people on the set that's great and they thought yeah that's it he can pretend to be one of the hostages that's awesome yeah okay cool shall we break here and we can talk about a few more things during postscript i think i will ask you about whether and to the, the extent to which you enjoy the action part of this movie and maybe we'll we will get through to a few other things that we've that we've left out of this discussion sure ranking movie perms yeah movie perms we need to explore that issue further yep yeah i think that's that's really the heart of the film <laughs> so all right thank you thank you and thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. To get ad-free episodes and episodes of our after show, Postscript, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Also, this podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other Airwave shows like Food with former New York Times food journalist and best-selling author Mark Bittman and Movie Therapy in which Siskel and Ebert meets Dear Abby. That's airwavemedia.com. Thank you.